0: So um, let me just pray for us as we start. Uh, gracious Father, we thank you that your word is alive and it's active and that you want to speak to us. Lord, I, I pray that this portion of your word would encourage us to remember Christ and what he's done for us. I pray, Lord, that we would find comfort in what you reveal to us in this portion of, of your word, Lord. And I just ask these students, when they leave tonight, God that they would find their hope in Christ, that they would know that their sins are forgiven, that they would know that in Jesus, their shame is taken away, and they can live in honesty and transparency because of what Christ has done for us. We do all these things for your glory, and for your glory alone. Amen. Without a proper understanding of Genesis 3, you will misinterpret the entire storyline of the Bible. If you do not understand what is happening in this little chapter, the rest of the story of the Bible really makes no sense. It is imperative that we, that we take Genesis 3 seriously, which is why we are going to be spending two weeks looking at this chapter. Um, if you can imagine for a second, um, I even thought about maybe buying a big piece of paper, but uh, imagine I, I drew on a whiteboard a big arc, a big arc, um, now, that arc is what we call the, 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 the gospel arc, right, where the whole storyline of the Bible is on this arc, where it has a beginning, right, and then it has a climax in the middle and it has an ending, right? So what, what we are looking at here is the very kind of beginning of this arc, where God has made his creation, he has declared it to be good, he has made man in his image, he has given man a helper, but now the narrative takes a shift. Now the narrative begins to actually bring in tension. And before we read the text, let me just ask a few questions. How many of us have struggled with questions of why? Why is there so much pain and misery in the world? Why do tsunamis wipe out thousands of people? Why do kids die from very preventable diseases? Why do hurricanes destroy people's homes and communities? Why is there so much violence in the world? Why why are families broken apart with divorce? Why is my life full of anxiety and depression? Why is my life seem to never be going and the vision I wanted to. Why is there such political brokenness? Why is there so much sadness in the world? Yeah, I think to be a legitimate, honest Christian, at one point, we will have those questions to God. God, why is there so much hurting in the world? Matter of fact, Romans chapter 8 seems to indicate that the more spirit-filled we are, the more we'll experience Pain. The more we'll be aware to the pain of the world. I mean, I just I still think I was in college when the the earthquake in Haiti happened. And I remember like the death toll. I, I remember hearing it a few years later, and I remember the number like not even being being able to fathom it. Hundreds of thousands of people dead. Those were people who had <clears throat> dreams. And hopes and future is gone, right? The world we live in, it is, if you take a minute just to look at the brokenness, it's hard at times to deal with. And, and the reason why Genesis 3 is so important is because it begins to shed light into those questions of why. The Israelites had the same questions that we do. Why is there so much pain and misery in the world? The Israelites who are reading Genesis 3 for the first time just watched an entire generation be killed off within 40 years. Most scholars believe that at the time, the Israelites, when they left Egypt and they're waiting their time in the wilderness before they entered the Promised Land, there's about 2.5 million people. Now they sinned, they disobeyed God, and God said, because of your sin... None of this generation will make it into the promised land. So he made them march around the wilderness. And so so here's the thing about 2.5 million people die within 40 years. You can calculate that out to about 175 people a day for 40 years died. It's a lot of funerals. It's a lot of grief. That's a lot of questions of, man, God, this life is hard. Matter of fact, it's so hard that even Moses. Wrote a psalm about it, Psalm 90. And when she says, Man, what is man? Right? So I want you to tell, I want want to say this. Questions of why and hurting of the suffering are normal and good. But two, God's word doesn't leave us isolated to be able to answer those questions. So uh, today, the title of the message is called Paradise Lost. Let me go ahead and read. The section for us and hopefully give us some context and talk about why does the world we live in have so much brokenness. Genesis 3 answers that. Starting in Genesis 3, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. And he ate. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. But to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curses is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you are taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil Misery and suffering is because of sin. God's original intention for us was not to live a life where we would suffer disease, famine, nakedness, relational brokenness, hurricanes. God God never intended that, but, but, but clearly the story took a turn. Clearly the story began to fall out of God's intended purposes. And although there's much to say about did God allow it and did God not allow it, and those are good conversations to have, I would like for this week to be a week where we, we just go through the text. What do we learn from this little narrative? And next week, maybe talk a little bit more about the punishments given to the serpent, the man, and the woman, and what God will be doing to restore all of this. So here's what i like to talk about. The effects that sin has on all of us. The effects that sin has on all of us. All right, here's my first point. Sin always doubts the goodness of God. Look down at verse one. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Now, a lot of people conjecture, who is this serpent? Is he Satan? Is he like an offspring of Satan? Is he some demonic force? Um, There's a lot of conjecture, but I I think without a doubt, we, we have to assume that this is some type of fallen angel or Satan himself trying to deceive the woman here, right? So this isn't just some person or some serpent who uh, God made, I was talking, that, that, that deceived him. This is someone who knew God, knew sin already, and deceived him into it, right? And so what he, he comes up to not the man, interestingly enough, because why not the man? Because the command to not eat of the tree actually went to the man and not to the woman. Actually, do me a favor, look down. At chapter two, and verse eight, and the Lord God planted a garden in the Eden in the east, and there he put the man, Eve has not been yet made, whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and of evil. Now look at verse fifteen. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And then, what did God do? The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So it was Adam's responsibility to lead. We talked about that last week's message, that that the man is the one who leads but the serpent goes to the woman. Adam is not leading. And, and, and so what does the serpent do? What is his strategy? What, what is his main way of trying to get humanity to disobey God? Did God actually say this? He begins to question God. And more than that, do me a favor. Look down at verse 4 of chapter 3. But the serpent said to the woman after she gives her defense, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. God is so overbearing. He doesn't mean that. God just puts a lot of rules out there. You're not going to die. What is the serpent doing? He is assaulting the goodness of God. God God, didn't, God is just an overbearing landlord. He, God is all about giving rules and having no fun. And the woman begins to think about that. Huh. Yeah. That, it looks desirable. It looks good. And, and I could have a more insight. I, I can know between good and evil. Now, a lot of people at this point in the story question, why did God even put that tree there? Why did God even give Adam and Eve a choice? Why couldn't he just make them, and right now we'd all be happy and no sin or misery and no early deaths or disease? Why did God have to do that? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you want people to love you for who you are or to love you because they're just kind of robotic in their love for you and they just do it because they're supposed to? God put that tree in there to give them a choice because obedience doesn't mean anything if there isn't a choice not to do something. So God clearly puts in the tree to say, you shall love me by obeying me and there has to be a choice. So God gives the tree and the serpent, his first job in bringing sin to the world is what? Questioning the goodness of God. Let me tell you guys something. Every single time you sin, willfully, or in ignorance. Here's what we are saying. God, your law for me is not good. My way is better. Do you guys see what the first sin is? Matter of fact, all sin is this sin. Look down at verse five again. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like what? What does it say? Your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Verse 5. Knowing good and evil. Here's what sin always is sin is always pride, or we think that we know better than God. God says, hey, don't do this. This will lead to your harm. This is no good. This leads to misery. Do not have sex outside of marriage. That doesn't seem good. That doesn't seem like fun. That wars against how I've made, been made biologically. I am not going to do that. Every single time you have an attitude, a thought, a word, an action that goes against God, what you are in essence saying, is my way is better than God's way. You are exactly doing what the serpent says here you will be like God. Every time we fall into unbelief or into sin or into disobedience, we are doubting the goodness of God. We are putting ourselves in a way to which we say, my way and how I see how the world should operate is better than God's. Sin is always thinking that we know better than God. And here's what I want to say to you guys. Listen. Sin Always promises but never delivers. Right? Isn't that? The, the, he says, You're not going to die. You'll actually be like God. But what happens when they eat of it? A whole bunch of dysfunction. As a matter of fact, in the weeks to come, we'll continue to see how this spiral of sin leads to polygamy, it leads to rape. It leads to murder. It leads to people being so godless that God has to send a flood. Sin is always leading to misery and pain. And guys, let me tell you something. When we are struggling with sin, we need to remember, we need to remind ourselves that God's word, his command, his rules, his statues are good. If there is ever a desire in you to do something that wars against what scripture is, let me tell you that it's your desire that's wrong. It's not God's. Consider Jesus in Matthew 4. He's in the wilderness. And he's fasting for 40 days. And who comes to him? Maybe it was a crafty little serpent. We are told it was Satan himself. And he came and 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 he... said, hey, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kings of the world. Hey, if you're really God, why don't you take these stones and make them into bread? But do you know what Jesus said every time? Quoted scripture. Because he knew that scripture was to be obeyed, that, that, that God and his commands are for our good. When you're tempted to sin, when you're tempted to, to to jump on whatever hobby horse or cultural trend there is of the day and to war against what God's word says. Let me tell you, it all started here with a crafty little serpent getting us to think that God's way really isn't that good. How many of us have thought that being a Christian and reading the Bible was just a book of, man, they're just so uptight, those Christians? Man, my youth pastor, he just is all about like making sure that, you know, we don't do this. Or we're not holding hands. And, and man, all those rules, that youth group. And I, I mean, I've seen people come in and come out all the time because to them, religion was all about obeying a bunch of laws. See, subtly in our thinking, we sometimes doubt the goodness of God. And when we are sinning, his love we do not know. Sin always doubts the goodness of God. Second, we learn that sin always leads to shame and guilt. Sin always leads to shame and guilt. So they they take the the fruit. She brings it to her husband. They eat it. I don't know if it was like immediately, the next day, but it seems like it's pretty close, right? In verse seven, what happens? Down. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. I have this vague memory when I was a <laughs> in um, Sunday school, I was, like a fourth grader, and we're talking about this story. And the teacher asked the question: What was the first thing that happened when they took of the fruit? And this kid named Chris was like, oh, "Well, I guess they felt a little breeze." Yeah. <laughs> what What must it have been like for people who? Their nakedness was just so a part of it, and they they had no idea. And for one moment to look and to feel the need to cover. Right? So what does it say in verse in verse seven? And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth. Sin will always lead to us hiding and covering. See, Adam, he has always only known what it was like to be intimate with his creator. He always only knew what it was like to be fully in his presence in the garden when he was working. Adam only ever knew what it was like to be perfect without the mar of sin. But the second he ate of that fruit, what was his instinct in that moment? To hide. I always think this verse is a little funny where... Where in verse 9, the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? In Hebrew, that's what we call an interrogative question, where it's a question seeking information. Do you think God didn't really know where Adam was? Do you think God didn't know the answer to the question of who told you that you were naked? You see, we do the same thing when we sin. We hide. And we cover. We hide and we cover. Let me give you a few examples of this, okay? One, when it comes to confessing our sin, we don't tell the truth. Hey, how's it going? You're walking with the Lord. Oh, it's going pretty good, I guess. Oh, yeah? What, what, what are some things you've been struggling with? Uh, well, you know, um, sometimes I, I get kind of mad at my little brother because he is annoying. If that was the worst sin you struggled with, man, I don't, I don't even feel worthy to look at you, right? Like that—that's that's the extent of your holiness. That the worst thing that you struggle with is that sometimes you get annoyed with your brother. But what's the truth? And deep down, there's a heart full of anxiety, of jealousy, and comparison. There's gossip, there's slander, there's bitterness, there's anger, there's rage. But what do we do? We cover. We hide, right? We, sometimes we literally hide. we run away from that person. If anyone's going to expose us, we, we are so fearful of man that they're going to expose us, that, that they're going to put a spotlight on that ugly little sin. And so what do we do? We cover behind a perfect Instagram story. We put up walls. We don't let people get close to us. We give half truths. We say that we struggle with minicule sins when, really, deep down in our hearts, we are alone and we're scared that if someone actually knew who I was, they would reject me. This is what sin does we hide and we cover. We hide and we cover. We, we try to put on whatever God, whatever idol that we worship, hoping that maybe it'll make me feel secure for a moment. I don't want people to see who I really am. We cover ourselves with performance. We cover ourselves with money and sex and popularity. We cover ourselves with anything we can, hoping that no one... We'll get too close. Sin always leads to shame and guilt. I, can I just say something really quick? This isn't is in my notes, obviously, because my notes are gone, but it wasn't in my earlier notes, I am not remembering. I don't know who you are, but I already feel bad for the people in this room who have things in their life that they desperately want to tell someone, but that they're afraid to. And I want you to know that in Christ, the beautiful thing is that you don't have to hide and cover anymore. That you are so afraid of what your parents may do or what people may think of you if you came out and said this, whatever it is. But I want you to know, come into the light is always better than keeping it isolated in the darkness. Come forward with your sin. Never hide it. Because here's the thing. God knows already. He knows what you're hiding. He knows what you have done. It isn't a secret. And one day, here's the truth, we will all be exposed. Whether we want to or not. What else do we learn sin always leads to chaos and misery. Now, God is upset that his creation has sin in it now. And so this blame game happens, right? The woman blames the serpent, right? The man blames the woman. I just think it's so funny, right? Look at chapter 2, verse 22. Verse 23, the man said, looking at his wife for the first time, this is, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she has been taken out of man. Verse 12 of chapter 3, she did it. The woman you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree, right? One moment, oh my gosh, this, this is exactly what I wanted. Bone of my bones. Adam, what have you done? It's her. It's her. Do right? You see, like, Adam, come on, bro. Like, you can do better representing all of humanity here. He ain't doing a good job, right? He loves his wife, but the, the first opportunity he has to shift blame, what does he do? You, well, you gave her to me. Sin always leads to chaos and misery. So, so we'll spend a little bit more time on this next week, but I will go over a little bit. So in verses 14 through 19, God gives a series of curses. And here's what we always have to know. When God gives a curse, there's always grace in it. So, uh, for example, we'll, we'll skip the curse of the serpent for a second. Um, in verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Here's the curse. Childbearing will now be hard. Here's the grace. You're still good to have children. And some people think that uh, he's talking about just the pain and childbearing, but, but really in Hebrew, it's the idea that all of parenting now will be hard. Because I think you talk to most parents, The idea of parenting someone from age zero to however many years is far worse than just those couple of hours of labor. Parenting is difficult. It is hard. It is challenging. It's by far maybe the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. But God gives judgment, but he gives grace. Look to the man. And Adam said, uh, verse 17, because you listen listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten the tree, cursed of the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat all the days of your life. So, the ground will still produce bread, grace, but work will be hard. We talked about this a few weeks ago, right? Work is a God-given thing where God has designed us to reflect his glory and all the different things that we can do in artists and in law and in medicine and education, every single thing that we do reflects God's glory, but now this work will be hard. You'll put 10 minutes of work in and it's really hard and your brain just immediately fights this. This is hard. I'd rather just look on my phone. We procrastinate and it's difficult, and we sweat, and we smell, and we get splinters, and our backs hurt, and our feet get sore, and the sun scorches down on us. Everything now is different. Life will never be the same. Everything about the world that they knew it was completely gone, like they woke up the next day thinking it was all a bad dream, but it wasn't. Because Adam and Eve chose to eat that fruit and disobey God. The world now groans. Earthquakes happen, tornadoes, and more than that, the, 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 the relational brokenness. I mean, we already looked at it a little bit where Adam and Eve begin this blame game and then they begin to fight over who's at fault. So much of the world and so much of sin is just chaotic. And bad, and let me tell you something. You may think that the little sins that you do aren't that big of a deal, but bank on it, listen. Sin always leads to chaos and dysfunction. I said earlier this point that sometimes sin promises but never delivers. Now here's the thing. We wouldn't sin if there wasn't any pleasure in it. We wouldn't scream our heads off at our parents or our siblings if it didn't feel a little good at the moment. We wouldn't do sexual sin if there wasn't some enticement. We wouldn't cheat or steal or covet our neighbor's stuff if there wasn't a little enticement to it. But what does it end up doing? It creates dysfunction. It creates broken homes, orphaned children, early death, disease. And yet, we take sin so lightly sometimes. Matter of fact, people will change churches. And they'll quote the reason by saying, you talk about sin too much. Sin always leads to chaos and misery. But do me a favor, look at verse 14. To the curse that God gives to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Now this is really important. This verse right here. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What's really interesting, if you look in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and I, I can't remember right on top of my head. I'm sorry, Matthew or Luke? I think it's Matthew though. Take it back. I think it's Luke. He traces a genealogy all the way from Adam to Jesus. Why does he do that? Right? Have you you guys ever like started the Bible, read a genealogy, like, oh my gosh, this is so boring? Because here's the thing: when you can trace a genealogy from Adam to Jesus, here's what we know: that this descendant of the woman, where he says right there in verse 15, he shall the descendant of this woman shall bruise your head to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. In the Gospel of Luke, when we have that descendancy from Adam all the way to Jesus, what we are being mindful of is that this descendant from the woman is now in Jesus. And so like I said, what do I say? In judgment, there is always what? Grace. In judgment, there is always grace. And what is the grace in this? A lot of people, myself included, see this as the very first reference to hope hope that God will redeem, hope that God will restore, the hope that God says this story isn't done. This is the first little glimmer of the gospel. Like in the middle of sewage and chaos and dysfunction, and the middle of mud, a diamond ring pops out full of glitter, sparkle, and hope. And what is the promise? That one day this descendant of the woman Bruise the head of the serpent, but he shall bruise his heel. This is a picture of what is to come in Christ. That although sin creates chaos and dysfunction, we have hope. And we'll talk a little bit more about this verse next week. Last point: here it is. Sin always leads to a loss of God's presence. Sin always leads to a loss of God's presence. Look at verse 22 with me, chapter three. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to the guard, the way to the tree of life. Yes, sin always begins with doubting God's goodness. Sin will lead to shame and guilt where we want to cover ourselves, we want to hide. We don't ever want anyone to know us. As a matter of fact, when Paul, in Romans, he says, Woe is me, sinful man. Do you know what He's realizing that when he realizes how sinful he is before a holy God, what is his reaction? Woe is me. Don't even look at me. That's what sin does. It creates this covering and this shame. Woe is me. But, but more than that, sin leads to, to chaos and misery and dysfunction. But, but, but far more than all of that, far more than the hurricanes and, and the relational dysfunction, and far more than you sometimes feeling scared to share your sin, far more than anything, sin cuts off our lifeline with God where Adam always knew what it was like to, to walk with God in the garden, where, where, where Adam would hear the voice of God, where Adam, never for a second, an innocent child would think that, that God was far away. Now it happens. Because of sin, Adam is banished from the presence of God. I think Adam lived to like 900 something years old, but I guarantee you after this day, I want to believe that he cried himself to sleep knowing of what he had in the garden, that closeness and that intimacy with God. Listen to me clearly. Sin will always choke out your relationship with God. It'll always strangle your intimacy and the presence of God in your life. When you take sin lightly, it is impossible to be close to God. And I would even add to that, Sexual sin kills your walk with God and your intimacy faster than any other sin. How sad is it that because of sin, man no longer can know God. God is holy. God cannot be in the midst of sin. God God has nothing to do with sin. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And because of Adam now, every single generation, every seed of Adam, will now be tainted with sin. Yes, we see sin come from the serpent, this crafty serpent. but you want to know something? Sin now is so ingrained into our lives that it's not just the sin out there. Oftentimes the sin and the dysfunction that we see in the world comes right here in our hearts, right here. Not out there, right here. And at times we choke out our relationship with God. We drink from broken cisterns. We worship and we bow down at the gods of entertainment, of sex and success. But here's the hope. Here's the hope. Verse 20, look down with me. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Here it is, maybe the best verse. After verse 15. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This verse is incredible. This person is incredible. Let me tell you why. Because of their sin, they are banished from the presence of God, but God, in his judgment, there is always what? There is always grace. The little fig leaf that they tried to sew wasn't good enough. Do you want to know why? Because when we try to cover ourselves, it never works. It always just leaves some more pain, more insecurity, more anxiousness, more depression. When we try to use whatever we can, when we try to use success, when we try to use our family's accomplishments, when we try to use our good looks, when we try to use whatever to cover ourselves, it never works. We need to be clothed by God. You guys listen, sin is the worst thing to ever happen to humanity. It is the worst thing to ever happened to you, which is why I say repeatedly over and over and over again to you that the biggest need you have in life is to have your sins forgiven, and that is only through Christ. So praise be to God that we know the end of the story. Praise be to God that we know about Jesus because what do we know about Jesus? That he was ultimately banished from God while on the cross. Jesus suffered an eternity of hell being separated from his father. He was the true one who was banished from God so that we would never have to feel this again so that God could provide the clothing of his son's perfect righteousness for us. You see, as Christians, we don't hide our sin. We don't cover Why? Because we're covered in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And I know that if God sees me right now and he says, I love you and I accept you and there's nothing, anything you can do to earn this or deserve this, here's what I have confidence to say. Woe is me, I'm a sinner. Listen, I can outcry you or outlaugh you any day of the week because of how incredible it is to know that God has forgiven me of my sins. It is incredible, and you laugh at things that are so incredibly amazing, where you, you have no response but to laugh at God's goodness. But at the same time, you wanna cry so deep inside your hearts because you know how broken you are. Yeah, right now, if you are in Christ, you're forgiven. God sees you, and he says, you're accepted. I forgive you of all your sins. You have to believe that. You have to take that truth and put it into your heart. Guys, listen, my job here is not just for you to have another lesson on a text that's thousands of years old. What is our goal? That we would love Jesus more. And when we can see that it was Jesus who ultimately took our curse on the cross, who was cast out of the camp, who became Sin so that we could have the righteousness of God. It is only then and there can we begin to see the glimmer of hope that in Christ, what is God doing? He is restoring and redeeming all people, places, and things to himself. Jesus is re-Edenizing the world. That's why being a Christian It's a marvelous thing. It's the best thing. This is why every single week we want to just sing about the gospel. We want to talk about it. We want to remind ourselves and each other of, hey, don't forget. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. God, thank you for the incredible blessing it is to know that our sins are forgiven. Father, I, I... I think that many times we don't take this point seriously enough. That we, we, we think our sin is so light and minuscule, but Father, I just pray that when we see in Genesis 3 that the world went into chaos and disorder, you had a plan all along that you would send Jesus and he would truly take upon this curse and this punishment so that we wouldn't have to Lord, this is my prayer, that you would put faith in these students' lives, that they would see Christ, trust in him, depend on him, and that they'd be able to watch the shame and the guilt of their sin fall away. I do you guys take a minute and just ask God to make these truths reality in your life. Just Lord, we're gonna sing two more songs in a second, but just take a minute, pray to God, ask him to see that your sins are forgiven.